uh, chapter 2 that he expresses as he's recounting to us. He's something retelling these events. Some have called this Nehemiah's memoirs. But in any respect that Nehemiah is recounting the events that have taken place and he talks about the fear that he experienced. And the good thing is that we can confess with Nehemiah at what time I am afraid. I will trust in you. And also that's the confession of the psalmist, is it not? When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Well, in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, just for a bit of, of context here, of the, the crisis of Jerusalem has become known to Nehemiah. He, he's become aware of the great distress that's taken place there, that though there's, though there's been groups of the people of God that have been in the land for up to 90 years, that still there's been so much that's been undone. There's been great discouragement, great distress. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is still vulnerable to to attacks of any of those who would come in because the walls have not been rebuilt. And so, as a result of that, very little has been done. Few people have lived in the city because there's simply no safety to be found there. And also the great reproach that's been cast upon the name of Jerusalem. That's still at the days here where they look back and long time has it been since glorious things of thee have been spoken. And that's what Nehemiah is longing for, that once again there'd be glorious things spoken again of the city of Jerusalem because there is the city of God. It's God's people. And that's his desire. So Nehemiah, he's responded to the situation as he's been made aware of it by prayer and fasting as we saw in verse 4. The question I want us to kind of keep in mind this morning is how does one get from, I see the problem here, I see the need, this is what I want to do. And Nehemiah, as he, as he conveys to us in something of a summary of the prayer in verses 4 through 11 that he's prayed in this period of about three months. How do we get from, this is what I want to do. I want to do this to, now's the time for action. You know, sometimes it's hard to know, isn't it? We can have a plan of action. We can envision something of, this is going to have to take place. I want this to transpire but sometimes knowing just how to get from great intentions to let's put the hand to the plow and let's, let's step into action here. It's difficult to know. And so we're going to look at how that takes place here in Nehemiah's recounting of the events as he goes. And actually, as he's before King Artaxerxes here and just see what happens. Beginning in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, looking this morning at verses 1 through 10. It came about in the month Nisan, which was about three months after the events that took place in chapter 1. So that's the time frame here. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. Evidently, this was an occasion of a banquet. So the reference here to wine still was a banquet occasion. That wine was before him, and I, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Though you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Verse 6. Then the king said to me, the queen, 
sitting beside him. How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judea. In other words, he's asking for letters of passage to these provinces. He has to pass through from where he is going to Jerusalem. And then verse 8. Now letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and, the, and horsemen. And when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Now, as you read through this text here, it's not completely clear while you're reading through these verses of just exactly who's in charge. You know, are things going according to Nehemiah's plan here or are other factors involved here? You know, we could just say, well, by default, King Artaxerxes, he's the king, so he's in charge. He's in charge of the, the situation. He's addressing the questions here. But perhaps Nehemiah, through his wisdom, through his prowess and craftiness, maybe he's orchestrated the timing of events here, and so things are working as Nehemiah wants. In the response there in verse 2, where it says that he was very much afraid, perhaps it was nothing more than just because he was caught off guard by an unexpected response from the king, but still he's kind of got his plan in action here. He's within the framework of what he wants to accomplish. Well, maybe it's verse 6, the mysterious queen. You ever wonder why that pops in there? Also, we're going along there with the king, and then verse 6, the king said to me, and then the queen sitting beside him. You know, why in the world is that stuck in there? Well, most people would say it's indicating there's the possibility here of a change of, of settings. That verses 1 through 5 take place in one setting. And then there's a time frame between verses 5 and 6. And so Nehemiah is just indicating that in this particular time frame, the king said to me, at this time, the queen was sitting with him. It's not the banquet setting that we have in verses 1 through 5. What we have here, Nehemiah gives us in a retelling of these events, he's, he really uses an economy of words, and so we kind of have to piece things together. Some of it's a bit speculative, so we're not going to go off on speculation here. But just to help us try to understand what, what he is doing here. Some have thought, well, perhaps he mentions here because the queen is one who, who favors Nehemiah as well and feels like that Nehemiah's opportunity to approach the king and him being in a good mood and being receptive to his, to his word here would be because the queen is there. So there's some guesswork involved in that. But, you know, maybe she has a role here. That maybe she's, you know, put the female mystique over the situation here and she's in, in charge of it. And then you have uh, late in our references here, Sanballat and Tobiah. The forgotten, the unknown factors in this mix. So who is in charge, you know? Who's directing things here? The king, Nehemiah, queen, maybe 
Sanballat and Tobias are mentioned in the latter verses, that they have an influence here as well? Well, even though we can't answer these questions with any degree of certainty, and that's okay, Nehemiah directs us to his understanding of who's in charge. In verse 8, the very last part of verse 8, the king granted them to me because of what? Because of the good hand of my God was on me. So whatever roles of influence and control these other factors, these people, the king and Nehemiah may have, ultimately, Nehemiah reminds us here that the one in charge is God. The good hand of God is upon him. And because of God's favor upon Nehemiah, the king is reacting. The king is doing things. But still, credit goes into the Lord. You know, God does sovereignly control His creation, the affairs of men. And like Nehemiah, we get in these situations, we have to be reminded of that to remember that we must trust God. We trust His power. We trust His wisdom. And just like we'll look here in our text and see the the sovereign hand of God in these events, to look to see the sovereign hand of God in the events of our lives, whatever they may be. So where do we see the hand of God here sovereignly working in these events? Well, first of all, we see that, that God is the one who is the Lord of the righteous. He is the Lord of the righteous, simply those who are His people. Again, there's some uncertainty regarding Nehemiah's intentions here, regarding Nehemiah's timing here. You know, is he playing his hand as he has thought through this thing? Or is he caught off guard by an unexpected question because the king has noticed that his countenance has fallen? He appears to be surprised. Again, as we look at verse 2, it says that when the king says, this is nothing but sadness of heart, then I was very much afraid. It seems to me the favor of the idea that he's caught off guard here. That he wasn't expecting at this point to make his case before the king. So what do we, where do we see the sovereign hand of God? Well, first of all, we see the sovereign hand of God in an overriding providence. An overriding providence. I don't think that as we look at the events as they took place here, I don't think that we're looking at Nehemiah's likely plan of action. I don't think that this was the way that Nehemiah had imagined it. When he thought through and as he prayed in chapter 1, verse 11, praying that God would give him compassion before this man and before the king. And here he is, his opportunity, and all of a sudden it's being thrust into a situation, a situation he had envisioned, but not the timing perhaps, and not the way he had anticipated. But here he's caught in a situation where the king notices that you are sad. And again, why is that such an issue? We talked about that a few weeks ago. You don't go into the presence of the king with sadness. I mean, after all, he's got his own problems. He doesn't need yours. But also, perhaps it may indicate that there's been a change of your position toward the king. And the cupbearer is to be one who is to be absolutely trustworthy. The king must be able to trust him. One of his tasks, not all, one of his tasks, to sample the food before the king ate it. So that this was a man who was supposed to be trusted he comes into the presence of the king and demonstrates that there's a change in his countenance. The king has reason to suspect. Well, maybe he has changed regarding me. Maybe I can no longer trust Nehemiah. Maybe it's time for a new cupbearer. So, we see here, first of all, just God's sovereign hand. And I think in the overriding providence that things have gotten out of Nehemiah's hands but still within the hands of God. 
I think, as most of us would have imagined this situation, we try to put ourselves in Nehemiah's position. Most of us would have imagined that we would intend to take the initiative. We would like to be able to evaluate any given situation and to seek what we would deem to be the most opportune time and then approach the king cautiously and carefully regarding our concern. I think it would be safe to say that's how Nehemiah imagined that. But we see an overriding providence here. But think about the advantages of how the events how the events transpired. Rather than Nehemiah having to seek the opportunity and take the initiative, what do we see here? We see the king opens the door by asking a question. That's always to your advantage. When you're approaching someone of a higher position, that they open the door for you to speak freely and to share your concerns. So there's an advantage here in what's taking place. And Nehemiah just simply can seize the opportunity. It's one of those places where he can say, well, here it is. The door is wide open. You know, don't we like those? When it becomes clear cut, when the way is clear, it's open. All I got to do is go through here. And so there's an advantage here. But also the advantage, I think, is just a reminder, Nehemiah, as he shares in verse number four, he is thrust anew and afresh upon the Lord. That's always a good place to be. It's always a good place to be where God has a way of orchestrating the circumstances of our lives where it compels us anew and afresh to look to the Lord. In verse 4, the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. It's a reminder to Nehemiah, you need the Lord. That's, that's always safe. So there are some advantages that we see here just in God's overriding providence. I don't think it's how Nehemiah envisioned it. But we see the overriding providence of God. But there's also... We see the sovereign hand of God in His overseeing guidance. His overseeing guidance. Nehemiah's thoughtful and careful and detailed preparation that he makes for this time does not go to waste. He's prayed. He's thought. He's considered what he would say, what he would be willing to do. He's been through all that in his thinking here for the last several months and seems by the Lord's providence has come to a place where he's ready for a plan of action here. So he's able to give the answer to the king in verse 4. The king said to me, What would you request? I prayed to the God of heaven. He said, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. You know, three months ago, he may not have thought that he was the man for the guy, but at this point... After three months of prayer, I'm willing and ready and desiring to go. He's able to give a specific length of time. Verse 6, the king said to me, how long? And it pleased him, I gave him a definite time. And he asked boldly for safe passage letters and even for the provision of timbers from one of the king's servants. So he has the supplies that he needs. What do we see here? We see here he is, he's got a boldness here as he's seen the providential hand of God open the door. And if there is, as we suspect, a distinction of time between verses 5 and 6, when first of all the king simply says in verse, verse 4, what do, you want me to, what do you want to do? He replies in verse 5. Then at a later time, verse 6, it seems as if the king again takes the initiative here. The king said to me, how long will your journey be? He's taking an interest. So Nehemiah has reason here to believe that God has providentially worked in the circumstances 
and has prepared the way before him. So what does he do? He gets bold. He starts asking for things. Well, I need some letters of passage for safety here. And we're going to need some timber, some wood. So a real boldness that he has, a freedom that he has. Because he's seen the overriding providence of God. And God is overseeing now through his guidance. You know, an overriding providence or an overseeing guidance. God's prerogative is to use either of those as he sees fit. God is free as the sovereign Lord to overrule the best of intentions, the best of plans, the the most detailed of circumstances. God is free to overrule and to cause his work to be accomplished, his will to be accomplished, or he is free to simply oversee what he wills. In other words, he will use the, the talents. He will use the planning. And here we see both. There is the providential hand of God where God is overruling. He's controlling the circumstances. It's out of Nehemiah's control. And yet at the same time, there is the we see him with his overseeing guidance. He uses Nehemiah's preparations. He uses Nehemiah's gifts. He uses Nehemiah's Thoughtful care as he planned to do something here. It's God's prerogative to work freely and use doing either of these, but he's also working graciously. You know, God is working freely. He's, he's causing his will, his desires to be accomplished here. His, his good purposes to be done. He's freely working, yet at the same time, he is working graciously. He's using people. He's using Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't get his head chopped off. He is greatly used by God. The gracious using of God's people, working on behalf of His people. So Nehemiah's evaluation of all this again is, the good hand of my God was on me. The good hand of my God was on me. You know, that ought to be of great comfort to us as we look to God for, for guidance. And as we look to God for direction. Now, He is a God who is able and He is willing to overrule the best of our plans and our abilities or our inabilities to accomplish His good pleasure. Specifically, as we think about, you know, what's the plan of action? What's the next step for us as a congregation here regarding our sanctuary, regarding our building? What, what are we going to do here? You know, we're bringing in people. I've had people look at this thing. We've talked to people. But God can use that or He can overrule it as He wills. But to bring us to the place of simply saying, Lord, we're looking to you here. We're looking to you. God is free to, and he's able to overrule our plans and our abilities. You know, we may map something out, and you know, we like to do that, don't we? Don't we like to have a plan? And I think it's good, and I think it's right. I don't think it's dangerous to get to a place where we begin to presume upon God and say, well, God's going to take care of this, so we're not going to do anything. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the way to do it either. But to understand the best laid plans may be overruled by the providence of God. We'll lay our plans. We will plan carefully and prayerfully and seek what we believe to be the will of God. But we're also willing to say, Lord, we are not infallible here. So we come and say, you come and you overrule as you will within this situation. He's able to do that. But at the same time, he is able and He is willing to work through us. Is He not? That God does use our talents. 
God does use our experiences and he's still able to accomplish his own good pleasure. And you see the safety in that? He can overrule if he so pleases or he can use the talents that we bring to the table if he so, if he so pleases. The safety in that, the comfort in that is what? It doesn't ultimately depend upon us or me. It depends upon him. Use what he will, overrule what he will, but accomplish his good pleasure. We see that in the scripture. We see in a man, for example, like Moses. You know, man was, Moses was raised in Egypt. He was raised but with the best of training. But his position that he had there, which also brought about its limitations, his position was overridden. In other words, I don't need, God doesn't need Moses's expertise and his talents that he brings because of his training and schooling in Egypt. He doesn't need that to use him. So what does he do? He sends him to the wilderness. And there, when he calls him out, you know, what's Moses' response? Well, according to Moses, I've got too many limitations. One, I can't speak well. You want me to go back to, I never could speak well. I'm not the guy for this. Send somebody else. God can override those limitations. He can overrule those limitations. But at the same time, we see him using the skills using the talents that Moses had that he had achieved and so that even when he leads the people he leads the people out of Egypt into the wilderness he's gone to a place that he's familiar with he's been there for 40 years he's been in the desert he brings some leadership skills so it's not as though he doesn't God uses nothing of Moses the point is he's free to use what he will when he will he is free to overrule what he will he doesn't have to have those talents. If he uses them, great. If he doesn't, that's great. We allow God to be God. He is the Lord of the righteous. He's the Lord of His people. And we acknowledge that to Him. Say, Lord, we're Yours to do what You will. Use me as You will. If it be with all of my inabilities that You override, do it. If You want to use a talent I've got for Your glory to accomplish Your purposes, so be it. We rejoice in that. He is the Lord of the righteous. Also, we see here, He is the Lord of the royal He's the Lord of the royal. Of course, King Artaxerxes is the royal here. We get to this point of the story that Nehemiah, he's in the... uh, This is the the now or never time. It's the do or die moment. You know, is God going to come through? Is God going to deliver? Or is God just going to remove Nehemiah from the scene here and raise up someone else? Well, the king's response in verse 4... When he's, when Nehemiah replies to his question in verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city and the place of my father's tomb lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. The king said to me, what would you request? You know, can't you imagine Nehemiah? <laughs> what would you request? And still he, he goes and he says, I prayed to the God of heaven and he answered the king. You know, the response of the king there indicates that favor and this compassion that Nehemiah had asked of God. He spoke in chapter 1, verse 11. We asked for compassion. That's been granted, hasn't it? Just in the, in the brevity of those words of, of verse 4, what would you request? As opposed to, who do you think you are? What's so important about you, the seat of your fathers when you're in the presence of the king? 
So his response indicates that there has been a degree of favor granted. You know, I wonder how many times Nehemiah must have had to turn in his in his Bible to the to Proverbs twenty one, Proverbs twenty one one. There it says that the king's heart is in the hands of God to turn like channels of water. Turns it as he will. How many times that Nehemiah perhaps prayed, and you know, as we in our modern terminology, claim that verse? Well, I need I need this truth, God, that the, that the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord to turn as he wishes, just like he would channels of water. And now that truth is affirmed to him without reservation. You know, Nehemiah is one now; he can he can give testimony every time somebody now goes to Proverbs twenty-one one and reads that verse. You know, Nehemiah's in the crowd. You know what he says? Amen. That's true, right there. I know that's true because I've seen. God take and He turned the heart of the king to do that which is favorable when the king was certainly under no obligation to do so. You know, Scripture's clear message is that God reigns sovereignly over the kings of the earth. God rules and reigns sovereignly over the kings of all the earth. We see it in the example of Pharaoh. Who's in charge in the events of, of Moses and his interaction and encounter with Pharaoh? Let's look back at Exodus chapter 9 for a moment. Exodus chapter 9, beginning with verses 13 and following. The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. What's he saying? In other words, if I had if I had desired to, this is God speaking, his word, through Moses to Pharaoh. If I desired to, to send forth with my power that which I desired, if I desired you, I could have done it. I would put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. You would have been cut off from the earth. You wouldn't be here anymore. You know, we say in a degree that the that these plagues and these pestilence have come. There's been a measure of mercy, hasn't there? As severe as those as those plagues and those. And those things were the judgments brought. There's been a measure of mercy because they're still alive. But then what he says in verse 16, But indeed, for this cause, I have allowed you to remain. This is God speaking to Pharaoh. I've allowed you to remain here for this reason, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Who's in charge here? Why is it the Pharaoh is not removed from his position because God has a message to proclaim to him and to the world the message to him is I am the Lord God you remember when Moses came the very first time he came to Pharaoh he said the, the God of Israel said let my people go you know what Pharaoh's response was who is he who is this God of Israel I should obey him and God's saying well before this is all said and done you're going to know exactly who I am I am the Lord God and I have allowed you to remain in place in order to show you my power. You're going to know who this God is 
and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. My name, the name of God, is going to be proclaimed through all the earth because of the events that are transpiring here. What happened when the children of Israel went to the promised land? Even 40 years removed after wandering in the wilderness, they had a reputation. This is the people that God brought out of Egypt. The waters parted, and now they're coming here. They were known. So the message here is that God is in control here. And then we see over in chapter 10, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. See? The heart of the king is is in the hands of God to turn as he will. Yes, he can give favor and compassion as we see in the hand of Nehemiah. But he can also, for for his own purposes, harden his heart. That's what he says here. I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. I'm hardening his heart because I'm going to put on show. And he's going to know who I am. The king's heart is in the hands of God. Verse 2, And that ye may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that ye may know that I am the Lord. 14, 4, Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. <clears throat> Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. They've already left and they're, they're getting ready to leave and this is what's going to happen. He will chase after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Nehemiah has got a few days, but they're numbered, and it's only because of the grace of God. And in 17 of the same chapter, And as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, going into the Red Sea that's been parted. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 18. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And he is honored through Pharaoh when Pharaoh is at the bottom of the of the Dead sea, Red Sea. Who's in charge? Who is doing as he will? The king's heart is in the hands of God to turn as channels of water to do whatever he wills, whether it be to harden, whether it be to grant favor or compassion. God is Lord of the kings. He is called for no reason, for not for <laughs> He is called not for good reason, King of Kings. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King before whom every king will one day bow. He's the King of of the earth. Daniel. The book of Daniel, chapter 2. Hope I didn't scare anybody there. <laughs> Not calling anybody down. Daniel, chapter 2. This is God, uh, Daniel's testimony regarding the Lord. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Then you see the events in the book of Daniel around King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. 
you may remember that this was Nebuchadnezzar, he became a wild man for a few seasons. This is some of the accounting of that, of what takes place here. And this is, first of all, Daniel's explanation of the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. Verse 17, This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 25. Back up to 24. This is the interpretation, O King, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle, be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. Verse 32. You'll be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be at the beast of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. Then verses 34 and 35. But at the end of this period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At that time, my reason... Return to me. You know, God is the one who is accomplishing His will within the realms of those in authority. God is able to turn the heart of the greatest. He is the King of kings. He is the one who is sovereignly accomplishes His purposes. You know, we rejoice and we give thanks for those times and for those places where we see the righteous men in places of authority, in places of decision making. We rejoice in that, but listen, we do not despair. We do not despair when evil men rule because we know that there is a God who has the power to rule over them. And He does that. When we pray for the persecuted church, we pray for what? I ask that God would grant favor in the the eyes of those who are in positions of authority. But if God is... And I've asked too, God, if you'd be pleased, if they're not going to turn, remove them. I'm not going around praying for a lot of these things, you know. Sometimes the banners behind airplanes, you know, pray for the death of judges, you know. I'm not doing that. But I think we're talking about in such cultures where the people of God are being persecuted. As I ask God for His mercy to grant favor to His people and to those in authority. But if not, remove them. Exercise your prerogative as God. That those who would honor the law and the rule of God would be in positions of leadership. See, our dealings may be with something a whole lot less sensational than what we have here. You know, we're not dealing necessarily with political leaders and we're not dealing with kings in everyday life. Maybe we're simply dealing with situations of an ungodly boss or ungodly co-workers or a supervisor. To know that God is the Lord of them. God has a way of putting those people in our lives. You know, the experience that I've gone through in ministry, the challenge I've dealt with in ministry has been the challenge of dealing with ungodly church leadership. Man, we'll be in a situation I prayed God do something here. But at the same time, He chose not to. 
But to know that God is the Lord of the highest authorities, and if nothing else, I can learn the grace of God in such an encounter. Thankful I don't deal with that here. <laughs> but let me tell you, there are a lot of pastors that do. A lot of pastors that deal with that. And what's the battle? Where's the struggle? Where's the area that you need to acknowledge, confess the rule of God over those in your life? They're not there by accident. You know, and God has a way of putting those people into our lives that you just, to be honest, you just wish they weren't there. You wouldn't miss them. He has a way of doing that. But we did not despair. Lord, you are the Lord of the royal. You're the Lord of the King of kings. You're the Lord of those in the highest of places. Surely, surely, you can take care of the little people in my life. I don't have any kings. I don't have any presidents. I don't have any, anybody of real great significance. Just people I work with or for. And you can handle that. He's also Lord of the rival. Favor's been bestowed. The request's been granted. Nehemiah is what? He's on his way to the city. He's got his entourage traveling there. And then we'll come to verse 10. And then... For the first time, and these are, these are names that will appear many times in the book of Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah. The opposition. Now, all's been cleared for, for Nehemiah up to this point. Anything he could have wanted, hoped for, it's, it's laid out in front of him, he's able to go. But here we come to his actual arrival at Jerusalem. And there's perhaps, I think rightfully to say on his part, there was unexpected, unforeseen enemy lurking. You know, has God just not held up his end of the deal here? (laughs) God, you didn't tell me about this. Sometimes, well, Oh man, I didn't know to pray about. That. I prayed for Jerusalem and all. I prayed for help back here. I didn't just stop to think about prayer when I got there. You know, now the Lord knows. He knows. Well, what do we see here? Sanballat, Tobiah, they represent the ongoing opposition to God's plan. And where God is working, the enemy is working. So Samballat and Tobiah, they're introduced here. And again, they appear, appear many times throughout the book of Nehemiah. But also, as we look through the book of Nehemiah, we'll see that their plans are, are foiled on every front. They, they try this and it's foiled. They try this and it's foiled. So you see them you see them resulting to such things as mockery, but they try some big things and, and it just doesn't work. Now just reading through this, if you are a fan of the old Roadrunner cartoon, you know, Samballat and Tobiah, they are the coyotes of life. You know, they've got their big plans. They're gonna they're gonna get the roadrunner here. But it all just every time it's just foiled. That's the life of the coyote on the roadrunner, is it not? And we see that here, we see that the faithful hand of God, God using the presence of his enemies. And there's more than just the presence of people who don't like Nehemiah or whatever. What he says here in verse ten, it says that they were displeased it was displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. There's a spiritual issue here. There's a spiritual issue. The sons of Israel, the people of God. And so they're displeased with what's going on here. But God uses the presence of his enemies to demonstrate his continual faithfulness. What does the psalmist say? David in Psalm twenty three. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Does God remove any, every enemy? No. What does he say? You prepare a table before me, a feast in the presence of my enemies. I enjoy the privilege. I enjoy the luxury of the, of the, of the things of God, the blessing of God in the presence of my enemies. I'm not going to be deprived of that. God is Lord of the rival. God is God and King of the enemy. And God works in ways that compel us to look at Him not only in the beginning of a crisis, but also beyond. Now, this was just the beginning for Nehemiah. You now the way is paid for go, but life is still full of trials. Life is full of opposition. We know to some degree how to pray regarding our present needs, but what about the unforeseen future? Well, God, He knows that too. And how often would we look to God were He to come into our lives and just with one big swoosh, every trial, every opposition be removed? How often would we come to God in prayer? No, the enemies are there. God leaves them there. God's past deliverances should encourage. You know, Nehemiah comes and he's confronted with such people as Sambalat and, and Tobiah. You know what he has to look back to? He can look back to the events of the of verses 1 through 8. See how God has made the way clear before him. God has given him favor in the eyes of the king. God has granted his every request. So that when he comes and he's in the he's in the place, he's in the battlefield, and he's got Sanballat and Tobiah who are breathing down his neck at time and offering their criticisms and, and their hatred of what's being done there. What's his hope here? What's his confidence? The faithfulness of God in times past. God has brought me thus far. I can trust him to carry me on through today's battle. These enemies are not here by accident. They're here by design. Divine design. God has placed them there. God has left them there as an opportunity for Nehemiah to be reminded anew and afresh daily of the faithfulness of God. And he's going to be confronted with these two and other men time after time after time. And every time we see the faithfulness of God on behalf of Nehemiah. He is Lord of the rival. He's delivered in the past. He can meet us in the present. We give thanks today that we serve a sovereign Lord. He is Lord of the righteous. He is Lord of His people. He is our Lord. He's free to work in our lives, to override what He will, to guide with our abilities and our talents what He will. He's also Lord of the kings of kings. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's also Lord of those enemies, those battles, that, that opposition that we experience. It's not there by accident. God's accomplishing a work within us. We serve a sovereign Lord. We can trust Him in His wisdom. We can trust Him in His power. If it's in our lives, if it's in our lives, it is there by His design, it is there for His glory, and it is there for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness to Your people. We thank You that we do not serve a God who is forced to change plans because of circumstances and because of opposition. Lord, we serve the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us grace as a people of God to to embrace that, to embrace the implications of that. The areas that we struggle the most, those areas that are beyond our control, those things that we look to in our lives and we say, Lord, why is this here? That we can bow our knee before you and say, ultimately, Lord, it is, it's here. Because you've ordained that it be so. It's by your plan that we choose to trust you. Well, for some of us, those battles are much more severe. For some here today, the struggle is much more intense. I pray for grace today to, to embrace the truth of the sovereignty of God. That nothing is left to chance. Nothing is left to accident. Nothing is left to fate. Nothing is left to luck, good or bad. But all is under the control of the sovereign hand of God. So Lord, teach us as a people. Teach us as a church family what that means. Lord, teach us to look to you and to trust you and that we might look at the turn of events, the circumstances that take place in our lives as a church family, as individuals, and just simply say, the good hand of God is upon us. We thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.